1: Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Regarding Chen's newsletter, now is the time to sign up during the first 10 days of this quarter. The next available time to sign up for Chen's letter will be in April. So go to MiningStocks.com, MiningStocks.com, to sign up for Chen, as well as my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. The sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies and Brazil Resources. We do have a very full schedule for this uh, day's show, so let's get right to it. I've titled today's show "Gold's Great Depression: Is It Close to an End?" Uh, here in the first hour of the show, which is aired here on Voice America, we have two new guests uh, with the last name Oliver. In just a couple of minutes, Michael Oliver, who is one of the top technical analysts in the country, will be visiting me to talk about the equity markets as well as the gold markets. He believes the equity markets are in very dangerous territory, and that the gold markets are nearing the end of their bear market, and that they may have actually already hit those lows. Then Daniel Oliver, uh, who manages a hedge fund that is focused mostly on gold shares, will be with me. Daniel is a former lawyer, but also an Austrian economic thinker who is very bullish on gold shares. Daniel Oliver is more convinced than Michael Oliver that we have seen the lows in gold. He should uh, provide some good insights, I believe, not only in general with respect to the markets, but also so uh, explain the dynamics of the gold mining industry and why he is so bullish on that sector. In the second hour of today's show, which will be aired only at jtaylormedia.com, you can listen to that show starting at 4 o'clock p.m. New York time. Simply click on the podcast button at the homepage jtaylormedia.com. In the second hour, another hedge fund manager, Bill Lagner, will be with me to talk about his main themes for 2014. Bill believes that both the Japanese and U.S. debt markets will likely be in trouble in 2014 and that stocks in general will struggle as well. But he thinks gold shares will have a monster year in 2014, even in the midst of some real deflationary forces. Well, I look very much forward to talking to Bill Lagner uh, to address those issues. Then in the second uh, segment of the second hour, again, at jtaylormedia.com, Chen Lin will be with me to talk about some of his favorite stocks in the biotech and energy spaces. Finally, uh, in the second hour, I will summarize today's show and talk about some of my own themes for 2014, which, by the way, are very much in sync with Bill Wagner's, and I will also announce next week's guest as well as I noted we have a very full schedule today so let's get right to the first commercial break and when we come back I'll be with Michael Oliver don't go away I'll be right back
0: Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Michael Oliver, Michael uh, entered the financial services industry in 1975 on the futures side, joining E.F. Hutton, uh, their international commodity division in New York City. He studied under David Johnson, who's head of Hutton's commodity division and chairman of the COMEX at that time. Uh, In uh, the 1980s, uh, Michael began to develop his own momentum-based method of technical analysis. In 1987, uh, he, uh, he, his te- te- he technically anticipated and captured the crash, and Michael began to realize that his emergent momentum structural-based tools should be further developed into a full analytic methodology. In 1992, he was asked by the financial VP and head of Wachovia's, uh, Wachovia Bank's Trust Department uh, to provide soft-dollar research to Wachovia, and within a year, uh, Michael shifted from brokerage to full-time technical research. Uh, he, he is uh, his publication, uh, which is Momentum Structural uh, Analysis, or MSA for short, has provided its proprietary technology research services to uh, financial and asset management clients continually through uh, 1992, and some of the bigger names on Wall Street uh, that are taking advantage of Michael's work. Uh, we're really, really pleased to have him on with us today, and I can tell you that you can learn more about Michael if you go to his website. It's OliverMSA.com. Uh, That's Oliver, Amazon Mary, S is Sam, A as in Albert.com. Michael does not sell retail uh, research. He is uh, primarily focused uh, on uh, the larger clients, but you uh, would do well anyway to, to try to learn more about what he's about, and uh, uh, if it fits your needs, perhaps... Um, uh, you uh, you could subscribe to his letter, uh, but again, it, it is not an inexpensive letter because uh, well, that's the, the business model he's carved out, and we're just thankful that he's willing to share some time with us today and share his knowledge, which uh, I can tell you, we've only got a few minutes with him today, so we're going to want to have him back again, uh, if he's willing to come back, but uh, really good to have you, Michael. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, Thank you, Jay, for inviting me. Very, you know, very it, it's really great. Uh, I, you're you're sort of um, you know, really doing what you do. You're not out there on CNBC all the time, so I wasn't aware of you. I- Uh, and your great work. You've recently, um, uh, a book has been published, and work that you've done back in the 1970s, I'll just mention it to our listeners right now, it's The New Libertarianism, Anarcho-Capitalism, and we've had anarcho-capitalists on this show recently, Doug Casey, uh, uh, Jeff Berwick, and others have come on, Uh, and um, uh, so I I think this is a book we're going to want to talk to you about, Michael, in the future, uh, sometime soon, I hope, but we tell our listeners, also our listeners, uh, that they can go to olivermsa.com, Uh, to acquire this book as well and um, once we get a chance to uh, to review it and and talk to Michael about it you may really want to do that uh, because I think it's some some very important uh, insights into uh, the philosophical uh, basis of what's going on now uh, in the uh, in the libertarian movement in the free market movement well Michael you know um Since this is the first time we've had you on your show, most of our listeners may not be all that familiar with your work, and you have been mainly a technical analyst uh, for professional investors, uh, as, as we just noted. Uh, there are many schools of thought uh, when it comes to technical technical analysis. For example, we've had Elliott Wave specialists on this show. Robert Prechter has been on, Dr. Robert McHugh, and Gordon, they're all Elliott Wave people. Richard Russell is well-known for his Dow theory, Granville for his on-balance volume theory, and we've had uh, the work of Charles Nanner presented on this show as well. He's primarily a cycles analyst. You also mentioned that your technical analysis is uh, is often out of sync with the apparent fundamentals um, of the you know the, of orthodox wall Street technicians, so if you were to describe your approach to technical analysis how how would you describe it?
3: Uh, probably first and foremost, I take price as a secondary i mean I, I measure it as a primary, but it's, mm-hmm. i don't look at it the face of the price action. As the truth, Mm -hmm. Uh, in particular, price action at tops and bottoms is very deceptive. Uh, It indicates ongoing trend. Uh, Right now, for example, every time you make a new high, it's forever. You know, Uh, when you break price down and and detrend it via momentum analysis, all I'm doing really is taking price and measuring it instead of against a fixed axis on the left of how many dollars it takes to buy Mm -hmm. a share of stock. I'm measuring against a moving average of that stock or that index or that commodity.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: particularly, I look at long-term averages, long-term means. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> for example, a three-year average, 36-month average, three-quarter average. So I'm looking for big trends measured against big moving averages. It's not an issue of the price crossing over the average. That's rarely ever an issue. Mm-hmm. What happens is when you can plot price in relation to that average, you create an oscillator. Mm-hmm. And when you create the oscillator, you're creating a visual image of the trend behavior of that asset, Mm -hmm. not against the fixed scale on the left as a price chart, Mm -hmm. but against a dynamic scale, namely Mm -hmm. its own mean. Mm -hmm. And that mean is determined by that that asset. Uh, So for example, in a dynamically trending uh, bull market, that average is rising rapidly.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: And in a a more sluggish market, it's not rising so rapidly. Uh, And therefore, the market has to maintain pace with its own mean. Uh, it develops structures that you can see on the oscillator, much like a price chart does. And But you can see more on the oscillator than you might see on a price chart. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it gives you a different vantage point. And that's basically, in
1: long sentence, what I do. So you're looking at internals, <laughs> uh, market internals, essentially. And uh,
3: it, to an extent, yeah. I'm yeah. looking at how does price behave in relation to its own mean, not in relation to a fixed point on the price scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Usually, momentum will anticipate trend change mm-hmm. before price does, mm-hmm. and there, that is a, a
1: great advantage. Uh-huh. Well, that's a, exactly what you said on, on December 21st. You stated, and I quote, When a market is clearly in uptrend, you, the asset manager, don't need a cheerleader. You need instead intelligence information uh, as to when and where the bleeding obvious begins to fail. Now, right. the equity markets, uh, you know, as we well know, uh, has been in a bleeding obvious uptrend, and the gold and silver markets have been in a bleeding obvious downtrend. Do you see any internal market signs now that suggest these bleeding obvious trends may be about to reverse?
3: Well, let's, let's take stocks first. Uh, <clears throat> among the other attributes that most technicians don't look at is, is a factor of time, and I think it's a very important technical. Uh, in other words, there's a, a duration to a trend, and when you measure... Uh, stock market going back 100 years using the Dow and then the S&P in the 1950s, measure price, monthly price, versus its 36-month average, and measure the duration of bull trends and bear trends against that mean, you'll find there is an age limit.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, there's also averages. Uh, for example, average bear market lasts a year and a half to two years
4: mm-hmm.
3: on average. The average bull market lasts two and a half to three years. If a bull market, uh, and we're in one now, Gets into about four and a half years of upside duration without sufficient correction to the downside that indicates that prior bull market is over. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's still ongoing. We have not had any such correction Mm -hmm. uh, that would arrest the bull market. We're now one month short of five years of age.
4: Mm.
3: Uh, In the history, the hundred years of history that I studied, there were three markets that were older than we are. (laughs) Two of them still are. One of them we just surpassed. Those three markets in age. Were are 29, 87, and 2007. Oof. They all were past four and a half years. 2007 was 4.7 years. Uh, 29 and 87 were five years and one month. We're approaching five years. <clears throat> so that's an attribute you have to be aware of. Uh, not just price, but duration. It indicates age. And age in itself is an attribute of egregiousness in a trend. So that's a, that's a cautionary note right there
1: well it, it, it sort of reminds me of something else you you are a very much um, very much an admirer of uh, Bob Farrell, and you put out in your letter recently you talked about some of Farrell's main themes uh, and and one of them had to do exactly with that that there's a that ultimately there will be a reversion back to the mean I guess uh, mm-hmm. so so where are we now in the equity market? are we we're, we're far above that mean? So far,
3: we're like 28% out above the uh, current 36-month average. Another comparable means of study would be the three-year average, which adjusts only annually. Uh, The 36-month adjusts monthly, so it's more incremental. 200-week average is also a very interesting long-term mean, which is about four years in duration uh, in terms of its the average itself. Those are the type of means that the market oscillates constantly. In fact, in the weekend report, I just to. More or less visually endorsed what Bob Farrell's first two rules were. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what those rules are. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first rule as you hinted at, was markets tend to return to the mean mm-hmm. over time. His mm-hmm. second rule excesses in one direction will lead to opposite excess in the other direction uh-huh. uh, and that's that's the kicker
1: right there well this is this is what, not only re- this is what you re- were re- excuse me, but yeah, this so, is what you were saying that uh you had that four and a half year you know, bull run in 2987 and 2007. Then what we had was a horrendous decline below the mean, then following that. So mm-hmm. you would expect that's kind of what we might. Yeah, look even for just returning
3: to the mean right now
1: would be a, a monstrous headache for most people. Yeah. The mean is down around
3: basically, it's, it tells me that if we get a drop, you expect to visit uh, the 1400 area. Now, mm. uh, yeah. that, that's a huge haircut. And I would argue at that point, the odds of holding at the mean are not real good. Why? because we're so old and two, we've also had what uh, Farrell describes as excess and you can measure the excess on a price chart. Uh, the angle of ascent has changed mm-hmm. it was up up through well let's say late last year, the angle of ascent was fairly gradual and even mm-hmm. uh, starting in March of this past year we Entered acceleration yeah. where you can visually see on the price chart a steeper angle of ascent, and we did that yet again in October last year. Mm-hmm. So, we've, we've steeped the angle twice. Uh, that's not good. Uh, mm-hmm. This happened in especially, if it's not good in late in a bull market. Mm-hmm. What it indicates is very aggressive confidence, uh, a runaway, and also the attribute of overpricing. So, no matter what the fundamental is that you think is driving that market. Ultimately, even if the fundamental remains true, let's say it's the Fed, large S is the fundamental. Mm -hmm. Even if that fundamental remains true and in place, the market can overprice it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just incrementally price it, it overprices it, Mm -hmm. in which case it ultimately has to pay for its sin, Mm -hmm. and that's the
1: consequence that we see Mm -hmm. in
3: 2987 and 2007.
1: Yeah and and no doubt uh something to come not so pleasant uh and 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 not out of the um, and not out of the blue uh clearly as you're pointing out uh you, no, you, you you mentioned a couple of other ideas from from Bob Farrell um i but there's several others I, I guess you mentioned the first the first two which are uh, perhaps the most relevant now mm-hmm. the excess and the uh, return to the mean uh, he, he had
3: a few others that were quite good what's good about Farrell is he doesn't just observe things; he remembers it. And so many people I've noticed in the market at my age or older, who should have learned over time, uh-huh. si- simply don't. Whereas uh-huh. they go through hell, they pay the dues, they almost <laughs> go out of business, and then it, it, five years later they're singing the same song. And it's as if they they were twenty years old, uh, not fifty. You know. uh, they, they don't remember. Bob Farrell remembers, and that's one of the uh, virtues of his ten rules, which are accessible online almost anywhere. Just type in Bob Farrell's Ten Rules of Investment. Oh. Uh, let's see, his uh, another one of his that's particularly applicable now, he says the public buys most at the top and least at the bottom.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's human and nature. This, one I, this yeah. one I really like.
3: When all the experts and forecasts agree, dash, something else is going to happen.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, that's, that's the way it is, isn't it? I mean everybody I gets think a little... we
3: have the most cohesive agreement I've ever seen has accumulated in the last six months.
4: Well, we've I had don't the... think it
3: was true a year ago. I think in the last six months it's come to the fore, where now it is just universal. People who hate this market have given up and said, I've got to be a trend follower, I've got to be a trend follower. Mm-hmm. I've learned my lesson, let me in. Yeah. And oh. when I see that, it just says, oh, God, <laughs> it's, we're... we're there, I think. Now, there's an issue, though. Uh, you can have these attributes, and you shouldn't be cocky, though. Timing is very important. Yeah, for sure. And in my work, uh, I'm looking for points of trend breakage on momentum charts, not on price. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd have to go down a long way in price to break any long-term trend on the S&P right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But in terms of its annual momentum and quarterly momentum and such as that, uh, it won't take a lot. You could suffer a 3%, uh, 4%, 5 6 7 8% correction, which I frankly think is possible soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be fully within the acceptable Mm-hmm. Uh, also most bulls wouldn't be upset by that they think they have a buying opportunity
1: right exactly you get much
3: beyond eight percent right now you get down about ten percent off this high recent high and i'm doing major damage to annual momentum trends specifically for the s and uh, i would circle something around 1680 as being lethal mm-hmm. meaning if you get that low you've probably seen the high
1: oh. and
3: you're not just you're not correcting anymore. You're in you're in a new bear market.
1: Bob, we're just about out of time here. Uh, I can't let you go before I get your comments on gold. You mentioned uh, we've had now two years, uh, two two year downtrend in gold. Where does gold stand with respect to the mean? Well, I was uh,
3: fortunately got bearish on gold in March of 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, it peaked in, in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, so up in the 1800s, it took a long time for it to break down. Its annual momentum broke at that point. Price didn't respond right away. It was a waffling year. It responded this year, finally. I'm of the opinion that gold may have made its low. It was $11.79 this summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a coin toss to me right now. I don't have enough conclusive technical sense that the bottom is in place. I Mm -hmm. would optimally like to see it blown out one more time. Mm -hmm. But I think that any takeout of that low is probably marginal, meaning it's of the several percent variety, Mm -hmm. not of a $300 further drop below 1179 mm-hmm. um and I, right now my work is on the edge in terms of was that the bottom that we, mm-hmm. we recently retested we got to uh 1182 last uh, two mm-hmm. weeks ago
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh they're so very close to the summer low
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh that's a little too cute for me
4: mm-hmm.
3: uh that's some price guy putting a nickel in front of a freight train and saying let's see if i can make some money off
4: this." <laughs> you know he risked three
3: bucks type of thing <laughs>
1: yeah uh, and he's
3: making some money right now mm-hmm. uh But I'm not confident yet enough to say that was definitely the low.
1: Okay.
3: That could change over the next few months, but at this point, that's where I stand. I think from an investor's point of view, not a trader, Uh, owning gold now is not an unsafe idea.
1: Mm -hmm. For the long-term?
3: The long-term investor wants to buy coins or bullion. Mm -hmm. uh, There's no reason to hold back.
1: Not a bad opportunity Uh, at this time, probably. Yeah, I I think it's it's time to consider it, yeah. You know, Bob, there's uh, so much more to talk to you about. There's so many more questions that I had prepared, and I hope that you'll agree to come back sometime with me in the near future. Sure. Uh, Absolutely, Jeff. I look forward to it. Really really love to have you back. Folks, don't go away, because coming up in the next segment, I'm going to be talking to another Oliver. This is Don Oliver, uh, who manages a gold fund, and we're going to hear uh, what he has to say about this beleaguered gold mining industry. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
0: We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor.
1: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Dan Oliver. Dan is the director of the Committee for Monetary Research and Education. That's a nonprofit educational organization that seeks to promote greater public understanding of the nature of money, uh, of the monetary process, and of the central role that a healthy monetary system plays in the well-being, indeed in the very survival of a free society. And I must say that I <coughs> have been an attending the Committee for Monetary Research and Education, which is held twice yearly here in New York City, and those of you who live in this uh, part of the of the country, and even those who don't, because a lot of times people come in from far away, uh, you want to keep in touch with uh, with what the CMRE is doing, and really delighted that Dan Oliver is now a part of that. Dan is uh, also the founder uh, and managing director of uh, American uh, Capital LLC. Uh, Dan was previously a partner at Barings Capital, uh, and an asset management firm specializing in Latin American energy, commodity, and infrastructure projects. And Dan has an MBA uh, from NCED, uh that's in 2004-2005. He's got a law degree from Columbia University uh, and a BA degree in philosophy uh, and English from Vanderbilt University, 1992-1996. Uh, Welcome, Dan. It's really good to have you with us on Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate being on your show. You know, uh, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your firm, Mer-Meekin, uh if I'm pronouncing it right, Miramekin Capital. What does it do and, and what is the nature of its clientele?
2: Well, Miramekin Capital uh, is a, a firm that uh, focuses on the junior mining shares. And it focuses on them less from a commodity perspective, th- th- that is, Uh, looking at uh, the the, the nature of how commodities are are mined and dug up, which is how most commodity firms function. And and the focus is more on the monetary aspect of of gold, specifically. Uh, If you look back through history, uh, you see that there have been a series of credit bubbles um, and then credit collapses. And this started in Greece in the 6th century B.C. and affected the Romans. Uh, And since the advent of central banking in in the West, these collapses have become all the more frequent. And that's what we're living through now is the credit collapse. if you look at these historical events, uh, gold always outperforms everything else when credit collapses. And there are lots of reasons for that, which we can discuss later if you like. But one of the effects of that is that gold mining companies, uh, which have small margins normally, uh, when gold runs up, as opposed as against the cost of mining gold, the margin uh, expands dramatically. And so gold mining firms behave essentially as insurance against a credit collapse. And since mm-hmm. most other assets that people own, uh, housing, stocks, uh, bonds, are, are based on credit, who, who buys houses but cash, right, when uses mm-hmm. uh, 90% mortgages, S- since most of those we- wealth are located in, in, these, in these other assets, I think it's incumbent upon uh, people with assets under, under management or, or wealth that they have privately to, to insure against that by having assets that uh, are anti-correlated to the uh, credit cycle
1: hmm Well, um, I, I suppose you're also in favor of owning the bullion itself. I mean, your your focus in the fund is the uh, the mining companies. Uh, what do you think is better? Should should I mean, and each individual has to decide for themselves, of course. But your own preference with respect to the bullion or the or the uh, funds are the, yeah. the shares. Yeah, I, I think that the two are entirely separate uh, mm-hmm. investments, and, and, and I guess one of the analogies I would use is: if you liked
2: you know, General Electric as a, as a company, would you buy the stock or the bonds? Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it's, it's not an either-or decision. It, it depends on your uh, what your goals are for owning that instrument. And basically, what what gold bullion is is a insurance policy against the systemic collapse of the banking system. In other words, most, again, almost everyone's assets in this day and age are paper assets. They own assets because they have a paper document that says they own it. And when the bank closes, as it has in this country, in 1933, the first thing Roosevelt did was close the banks, or, or the markets crash, or any of these things happen, uh, all of a sudden you can be wiped out, and you have, you have your claims on the assets disappear. So what gold is, is it's not a claim on an asset, it's an asset itself. Now, when you buy the mining shares, you have to understand that you have a share of a company. You have a, a, uh, a claim on an asset, and, and that can, in fact, disappear. But the, the reason you buy the, the mining shares is that um, if bad things happen and we get lots of inflation, the mining shares can well outperform the gold bullion price. So you take more risk, but your return is also much higher.
1: Do you see uh, the mining shares performing better in an inflationary environment or a deflationary environment? The reason I ask that, of course, is the 1930s uh, gold shares, those companies that were producing, did extremely well. Uh, And we noticed also after the Lehman Brothers collapse... Uh, and what I think was a very brief bout of deflation, we saw also the real price of gold rising relative to the cost relative to other materials costs to energy and the, and the margins for gold mining companies improved for a couple of years there after Lehman Brothers uh, until the all the money was created again, and we started having inflation in the equity markets or in other places, and now the shares haven 't done as well so my question is. What is better for, generally speaking, and maybe, maybe you can't make a rule, but uh, what would you rather see uh, in running a gold fund? Would you rather see a deflationary environment or an inflationary environment?
2: Well, it's, it's a great question, and of course, you, you, you put your finger on it, which is that, you know, again, the margins of a gold mining company is determined by the spread between gold and the input costs, mm-hmm. which are mostly oil, labor, and base metal costs. And, and that spread can widen in a, in a falling price environment, as in the 1930s, or it can fall in a rising price environment. And what the miners care about is really that spread and not the nominal price So to to my mind, it doesn't really matter if we're in a deflationary or or inflationary environment. What really matters is you have to think about what affects that spread. And again, if you look back at the the data and you understand the theory of Austrian economic business cycle uh, theory, what really affects that spread is debt levels. And so, what I would say is that debt levels can fall in two different ways. You, know, you can have mass defaults, which is what we had in the 1930s, and just no one paid their debts, so prices fell uh, and gold was fixed, it stayed the same and, and the cost plummeted. Or, or you can have a credit collapse where prices shoot higher because of inflation. I mean, if you have a bond, and all of a sudden there's massive inflation, and you get paid back with worthless dollars, uh, you, your bond has been you know, made worthless. The debt levels have fallen that way. And that's what happened in the 70s, or, or more dramatically, mm-hmm. in, a, in a Weimar situation. So, to, to me, you know, what really drives the margin are debt levels. And I would point out, Jerry, that in the 1970s, you know, it wasn't really a debt problem. If you look at the societal debt to GDP ratio in the 1970s, it really wasn't that elevated. The, mm-hmm. the inflation came from uh, the madness of the Federal Reserve uh, following the Phillips Curve model, which was mm-hmm. deeply flawed, right? But if you look at today, the credit levels are actually worse, higher than they were in the 1930s. So I think what's going to happen is that, um, uh, that when the credit collapse comes, and it can come either way, deflation or inflation,
1: mm-hmm. that's when you're going to see the, the giant uh, increase in margins. Mm-hmm. loss of confidence in the uh, in the fiat currency system, I guess drives people to uh, secure monetary assets
2: well 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 that 's certainly part of it, but yeah. it 's also driven by interest rates, as you know mm-hmm. when, when interest rates are very low uh, that 's wonderful for debt right I mean, you, you issue debt, interest rates fall, the debt's worth more uh, and, and so you know the debt system is very healthy, and that is in fact what the Fed has done uh, since the crash in two thousand and eight They, they yeah. have supported the debt pyramid by. Buying lots of debt and, and shrinking interest rates, and so everyone's debt is very easy to pay right now because the maintenance cost of debt is so low. But you know, ever since the Fed announced it might taper, and now it actually is tapering, you know, what's happened is. Uh, the interest rates have shot higher, so you know the burden of that debt is going to start to get much, much worse, and when that debt becomes unpayable, which it will because we have record levels of debt, that's when you'll start to see problems and that's when gold will start to outperform in real terms, which as you point out is the real metric that drives the performance of the gold mining shares.
1: Well, if we start to see some problems in the equity market, uh, don't you suppose that instead of a Bernanke put, now we're going to have uh, uh, the new chair lady, um, uh, Janet, a a Yellen put? Uh, and so, equity market people can just keep betting on uh, never-ending credit and money pumped into the system, or, or is there some limit to which uh, it will no longer work?
2: Well, that's another great question. You know, I, I was asked in, in a presentation about a year ago by some very smart uh, investors. You know, why the Fed can't just buy all the bonds? Yeah. Right? Why not? I mean, they, they buy them all and set the interest rate. Mm-hmm. And, and there were yeah, that's actually been tried before. There was a fellow named John Law back <laughs> yeah. in the early 18th century, and that's what he did. He bought all of the France sovereign debt, right? And, and we know that the first effect of printing money uh, through the capital markets is the stock market boom. You know, the, the word millionaire was, was coined in that period because up until that time, you know, you were only rich if you had land. It wasn't, there was no word to describe someone who was rich who didn't have land and, and, until mm-hmm. this bubble. And so the first effect was a huge stock market bubble. And then following that, of course, we know the stock market uh, collapsed. And, and you had hyperinflation, and everyone tried to get the gold as fast as they could. So, so the question is, you know, how far can the Fed stress its rubber band? How, how, what percentage of bonds can they buy? Uh, and, and I think they must be reaching the limiting point already. It's not just the number of bonds they bought, but it's the maturity of them, right? Mm. I mean, again, in the 70s, uh, well, you know, in the original Federal Reserve Act, the Fed was prohibited from buying any bonds that were longer than 90-day terms. Hmm. Um, and, and that obviously started uh, uh, disappearing almost immediately. Uh, but at least in the 70s, you still had the average maturity of, I don't know, a, a year, two years, somewhere mm-hmm. around there, maybe a little less. Uh, and now the average maturity of the bonds in the Federal Reserve are up at the 10-11-year uh, mark. Hmm. And, and that means that their flexibility is very little. Uh, and so yeah, I, I don't know that... Janet Yellen has the ability to to issue that put when it comes because it may well be the next time the Fed tries to expand QE that all that money goes straight into real assets and so the stocks. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see.
1: Mm. So, uh, are are you betting uh, that the uh, that the bull market in long dated Treasuries U.S. Treasuries is over?
2: Well, I mean, again, that that's a tricky question because, <laughs> in, and, well, in in this sense that. Uh, look, John Law bought all the bonds. So can the Fed. Yeah, right? the, right. the Fed can push that price wherever they want to. It can make that yield wherever they want it to go. And so, and so, yeah, is it possible to have capital gains in long-term bonds? Well, sure it is. If they, if they triple QE, bonds will rally. But what they can't do is control pricing relationships. So I, I think if they really a step on QE, there's a certain level where it will break. In other words, the nominal price of bonds will go up because they're buying so many, but the purchasing power will decline. And, and that probably will happen very violently.
1: I'd like to ask you just a, another question or two about the kind of mining companies that you're buying. Your fund does, I would imagine, it it must have some blue chips in it. I mean, household names uh, that everybody's familiar with. But are you a focused mostly on on the big guys, the, the mid-sized producers, or Uh, or or exploration companies that are not yet in production.
2: Yeah, you know, at this point, I'm almost exclusively in in junior stocks, and Uh and I'll tell you why, because... The, the, the major companies, uh, as, as a rule, all tackled very expensive projects with huge capital requirements over the past few years when mm-hmm. gold was running higher. And so if we look at their costs that are actually not that much different than the junior companies mm-hmm. that maybe have a single asset or, 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 or you know, are developing a, an asset. And so you think to yourself, well, okay, but what's happened to stock prices? When I mean, the senior companies are down maybe 60%, 70%, uh, or usually less, the juniors are down 90%. Mm-hmm. So if Gold is going to $1,000 or $900 an ounce, you know, I don't think any of these companies are going to be worth owning. So you're going to lose all your money no matter what, right? But if Gold goes to 1500 or 2000 or, or as I think four to $5,000, right, the majors will go up a little bit. The juniors will, 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 will go up massively. Mm-hmm. So to me the downside risk is almost the same, but the upside uh, opportunity is very different. So you know, why would you buy the company that offers you the same downside risk and, and less upside potential?
1: Are you, are you focusing on uh, producers, like mid-sized, smaller producers, or uh, do you have exploration companies in your portfolio as well?
2: I, I, I have both, but uh-huh. um, at the moment I'm focused more on the production companies uh, because the, for the companies I follow, the exploration companies went down less. Mm-hmm. And the reason they went down less is that um, – Extraction companies that have a cash balance that, that they use, you know, they're very. It's very easy for them to simply shrink their cash burn, mm-hmm. just yes. well more slowly, and so the assets haven't gone anywhere. Uh, the, the cash burn slows, and so the, the market doesn't discount them as much as a production company, where the market says, "Wait a second, if you're if full on costs are maybe $1,150 or maybe eleven fifty or twelve hundred and goes selling at eleven eighty, you know, we're going to price you a bankruptcy, you know, no, no matter what your assets are." So a lot of these companies have huge amounts of invested capital that have been written down, 90%, percent And so, you know, you buy those companies and if gold rallies, which it is rallying now, uh, you get an immediate impact on, on that investment. Now, obviously, again, it depends where you want to be in the risk curve. But to yeah. me, uh, it looks to me like gold has bottomed. Um, you know, the, the end of the year was very interesting because – Everyone who runs a hedge fund, uh, you know, they, they get paid their bonus by their balance on December thirty first, right? <laughs> yeah. So what that means is that you, you want to juice all your all the stocks. Are doing well, right? and if you're short, you want them to, to go lower, and, and that that increases your own take, right? As the manager, right? right. So screw your investors. That doesn't matter, right? Yeah. I mean, you just want to push the price where you want to push them. And so, so what happened? The bottom market melts up through. December 31st, right? It hits an all-time record high, right, on that right, date. And, right. and, and what do they do? The gold, short, all short gold, all these funds are short gold. Well, they push it down uh, as low as they can get it, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the year ends, and now they're all reversing those positions. They're all over And so you've seen since the beginning of the year the stock market falling off, and you've seen uh, gold heading higher, and, and people are scratching their heads <sighs> because they have all these macro reasons why the opposite should happen. But, uh, but, but that's what is happening, and I expect it to continue.
1: Right. Uh, Dan uh what would cause you to change your your bullish outlook on gold? Yeah that that's another great question.
2: Um when I started this, I, I was asked that by some of my my mentors who said, you know, "What what is the failure position?" And, and to me, if the Fed were were able to get the Fed's funds rate back to a normal position, which I consider to be four or five percent, and, and there were no bad outcomes, the, the market didn't crash, the economy didn't crash, or right? gold didn't go to ten thousand dollars an ounce, I, I think at that point intellectually you'd have to say I was just wrong, right? We just got it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know what what amuses me a little bit is that. You know, I'm reading in, in all the mainstream press that the Fed has solved the problems. Central mm-hmm. planning works, right? Yep. Where we're the crisis, Bernanke said last week, the crisis is over. Right? We're through it. And you think, wait a minute. These guys are still printing $75 billion a month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, then nothing's over. And, and, and I think William Dudley gave a speech last week where he said, you know, the Fed really doesn't understand how QE works.
1: I mean, that's a stunning
2: thing for him to admit. Right. So if they don't know how it works, how can they possibly predict what will happen when they, uh, when, when they, when they dial it back? And, and in fact, you know, what's already happening with this with the taper is what's happening. Gold's going up. The market's going down. emerging markets are having problems. So I think if they continue to, you know, mortgage rates are, are going up, you know, the housing markets cratering. So I, I, I expect if they continue to taper or even just fail to increase QE, the problems will accelerate rapidly.
1: You mentioned manipulation of the interest rates, for sure. I mean, that's something the Fed uh, and the government acknowledges. Uh, they manipulate the currency markets from time to time. I think they manipulate, uh, well, by, you, uh, by being in the, uh, in the interest rate markets and the bond markets and all that, they're essentially manipulating everything in, to a degree. But what about gold? I think you, you indicated or uh, perhaps implied that the gold markets are, are manip- being manipulated as well. Is that your, your view?
2: Well, well, let me answer it this way uh, the the reserve reserve banking system naturally suppresses gold prices and boosts other prices it, it just you don 't need a Fed it does that all its own mm-hmm. and so and so the, there 's that angle to it and, and so you know we know the debt levels are very high and this implies a very suppressed gold price and again, this isn 't just theory. you can look back through history and see these these patterns over and over again so you don 't need a nefarious Fed pushing the price around on, on the other hand, I will say that if you look back through history again, uh, almost always when you see a currency start collapsing, the central authorities start to monkey with the gold price. Hmm. Uh, it, whether it's John Law, whether it's Robespierre, right, whether, whether it's Stalin or Hitler, it doesn't matter. They, you know, they, they want to put their judgment above the markets, and they don't want people to go to gold. So they make it more of all, so they make it scary, and, and that is just chase people away. Is that happening now? I, I don't really know. But I don't really care because, again, my outlook is that the market is much bigger than any of these people, uh, you know, actors may be, and so the market will overcome any price fixing that, that that there are any.
1: Well, certainly here in the West, uh, gold is a uh, is a four letter swear word. But in China and elsewhere around the world, India, uh, huge amounts of buying reportedly coming out of China. How how? much of that do you believe uh, in terms of purchasing of gold coming out of China? And, and where is it? Is it coming from the West? It's coming from the United States, from Europe? Where is it coming from?
2: Well, you know, I, I don't really put much stock into anecdotal stories of people wearing in lines. I mean, mm-hmm. there can be lots of things. It can be follow next to the refiners. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. But w- w- what I do pay a, a great deal of attention to is the physical wholesale premiums because that's a hard market signal. And when mm-hmm. you, you see a premium of $15 in Shanghai, you know, it doesn't cost $15 an ounce to ship an ounce by airplane from London to Shanghai. It just doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. So if one market is willing to pay that much more than, than another market, you should expect to see gold flooding from, from the cheaper market to the more expensive market. And that's what you're seeing. And you know what, what I can't figure out is uh, it, since that's the case, right, and you've seen all of the hordes of physical gold that are publicly available in the West—the GLD mm-hmm. or the comics inventories—they're all disappearing, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, they are because, again, if you're a bank and you have the wherewithal to, to move this stuff to somewhere where it's more highly valued, you, you will. And so you'll you'll buy the physical in New York or London, you'll ship it to Shanghai or India, and sell it. So you know, to again. When we look at the big price smash in April, I mean, one thing that's a very basic tenet of microeconomics is you know, if you push a price below the market price, you get a shortage, right? And, and to me, I, I think gold is massively below its proper market price. And so what you should see is a shortage. And that is what you're seeing in India. It is what you're seeing in China. Uh, and, and that's what these lines and these, and these premiums tell you is that there's a huge demand for physical gold in those markets. And I expect that to continue until the premium goes away and I expect that goes away when uh, gold prices revert to much higher levels
1: mm-hmm. to their normal market
2: levels yeah, and, that, yeah. that 's right and, and don 't forget that you know gold has been going from west to east for over two thousand years. Uh, the, the Romans had this problem where they would you know buy silks and spices using gold and silver, and they would consume them and not have the gold and silver anymore yeah. and, and that 's essentially what we 're doing right we, we we import you know, junk from China, trinkets that break, and we give them, and we're selling them gold and silver essentially, <laughs> which yeah. they're going to keep. And, and that's a, that's a very uh, unhealthy trade balance. And so when the next speculative wave comes in the West for gold, which it undoubtedly will, uh, there's that much less gold for us to speculate on because it won't come back. I mean, the gold in the, in the East winds up on people's arms and around their necks, and, and it's very sticky. It doesn't really come,
1: come back west. You uh, talked about premiums uh, I think it I think I read in your uh, in your December thirteenth missive, and I know that on a panel discussion I was a part of uh, at a conference out in San Francisco not long ago, one of the Kitco analysts were on with me, and he was talking about a three hundred dollar premium. the Indians were paying above the paper price uh the futures markets in new York uh, Why do you think? Uh, the Indians are paying so much more than than the paper price. In, uh, is that the taxes that have been put into place, or what's causing that?
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's both, right? The, the Indians implemented some big um, uh, import taxes on gold recently. And so uh, what that means is that the, the importation of gold in the Indian has shrunk, which means that any Indian who wants to buy gold has to buy from another Indian as opposed to an American, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that is – if you, if you add the Indian premium plus the tax – The premium has been running about 25% above the global market for a long time. And, of course, what this has done is incurred smuggling. So what's interesting is just in the past week or so, you're starting to see the premium come down a bit. I think it's down to 22%. Uh, And and meanwhile, the reports of interdiction of smuggling routes is is spiking because, of course, all all India's neighbors are having huge increases in in imports. So, so, you know, India... you know, it's a very old country and culture. <laughs> they understand that the promises of government uh, don't mean a whole lot, right? I mean, you know, the the British come and leave. The, the the local raj comes and goes, right? I mean, you, who wants their promises? What you really want is a money that preserves itself over a long period of time, and that's what gold is. Uh, in the uh,
1: in the in the paper markets here in New York, I think I read <clears throat> you had uh, pointed out that. Uh, I think 95 percent or so of the December Comex deliveries were taken by J.P. Morgan, and um, and I've I know I read some speculation somewhere that Morgan may uh, actually be uh, be buying that gold on behalf of their Chinese clients. Does that sound reasonable to you?
2: Well, what what I think's happened is um, J.P. Morgan, you know, you can keep gold with them uh, in either allocated or unallocated accounts, and if you have gold with them as an unallocated matter. Maybe even it's allocated about it. Who knows? The, the bank owes you gold in the same way that when you deposit money with J.P. Morgan, they don't keep the money behind the counter. They owe it to you.
4: Mm-hmm. If you show
2: up, they have to get it somewhere and give it to you, right? So mm-hmm. so they're holding the gold. And again, they, they look over to Asia and they say, hey, we have this gold here. We can sell this physical gold at a huge premium and then cover ourselves in the futures markets,
4: mm-hmm. which is
2: what they do. So they capture that physical premium. And again, from their bookkeeping perspective, there's no difference between – Physical gold involved and if promised to receive gold in the future from the futures markets, there just isn't any difference. I mean, gold bugs and gold investors, of course, there's a difference. But from a banking balance sheet perspective, there's no difference. And so they do that, of course. And so here they are. I suspect that the vault's nearly empty because why wouldn't they have shipped all the gold to Asia to capture the premium? And now they need to replenish that, that gold. As long as the premium exists, they'll do it again.
1: Natural uh, market force is coming to play then. Uh, of course, exactly. Where everybody's trying to make a buck, uh, and they find an opportunity. And when government steps in and provides that opportunity, there's a chance for people to take advantage of that, I suppose. this is uh, free, free arbitrage. arbitrage. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, we're looking at uh, a couple of minutes left to go here, Dan. Um, just a couple more questions. on. Uh, we haven't talked about silver yet. Uh, do you buy any silver shares? Uh,
2: I have some silver. I, you know, silver uh, is supposed to be a lever play on gold, uh, and it certainly normally behaves that way. I, I'm not as certain of that because uh, gold is a monetary metal. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's what it is. It has very little economic use, which is mm-hmm. why it serves such good money. And so, you know, when, when you expect monetary problems, and I do, then gold should go up as against paper assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, silver is half monetary and, and half uh, industrial. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're expecting some sort of monetary problem that creates uh, a, a depression in the industrial side of things, then the demand for silver should, should go down, not up. Right? So I, I think it's a little tricky. Uh, again, if you look at historical events um, in the 70s, silver certainly outpaced uh, gold uh, because it was sort of an inflationary boom. Uh, whereas in the Depression, silver got crushed. Yeah. As, against, as against gold um, in, in Weimar Germany which I always look at as a, a model of what can really go wrong right uh, silver did very well and then when, at the end people you know, silver was more bulk, bulky so when people really panic they want to get the money out of the country they didn't yeah. want silver they gold because you can sell gold lying in your pockets yeah. or it silver so it, it's, it's a, I like silver it's, it's a different bet it's, it's, it's a very hard it's a very hard thing to get around Any trade traders called the devil's metal and, and there's a reason for that um, So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about it, but it's it's a slightly
1: different bet. When it comes to uh, one more question that I have in my mind uh, constantly, uh, do you you worry about confiscation of gold because it was done in the 1930s? I guess it wasn't exactly confiscation. The government paid you for it and then revalued gold higher after that. Um, And then the shares, of course, were a good way to own gold during the 1930s. Uh, They did extremely well. And uh, it's hard for me to see how Uh, the government could do a better job of running mining companies. Although Some of the mining uh, executives haven't done all that well, admittedly. But uh, do you worry about uh, the possibility of of a confiscation of gold uh, again? And do you see mining shares as a a good way to possibly avoid that or at least a a way to diversify uh, your gold holdings?
4: Yeah,
2: I I don't really worry about that, and, and there are lots of reasons for that. One is that in the 1930s, uh, gold was still widely distributed among the populace. And so mm-hmm. the government really wanted to get at it. That's not really true today. I mean, people have gold. People, your listeners have gold. But the, the average guy doesn't. And uh-huh. so the, the the gains to be had by doing that are very small. You know, as you point out, they, they didn't just take it. They had to compensate you for it. You know, there's a, the, the Constitution has a an amendment against takings. Now, with, with the robber's court, you know, I'm sure they can come up with any reason why they can take anything from you for, uh, for any reason like Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but But I I think it's a a more uh, far-fetched issue because people don't really have gold. And I'd also point out that at its essence, I mean, gold to me is the base money of the economy, and mm-hmm. so when banking systems have a problem, they're really having a problem with it, is, is their capital, is their gold position. They don't have any gold on, the, on their balance sheet, and the way you recover from a depression, from a banking collapse, is you recapitalize the banks with gold. Mm-hmm. And so the more the government suppresses the gold price, the higher the price has to go to entice the gold to come out of private hands and back into the banking sector. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: And so, you know, again, I, I haven't seen any commentary on it, but I think it's probably not coincidental that the rupee had a big collapse over the summer at the very time that they were putting in the gold import restrictions. In other words, they, they, you know, what happened was when they, they tried to kill gold, they wound up killing a rupee instead. And, and, and I, I think, I think if, if Obama were the, you know, the, the gold to be uh, the confiscated in the United States, my guess is what happens is that the dollar would collapse and the gold price would revalue to a price at which it was worth to part with it. And that would be a very high price indeed in that environment.
1: Well, that's very, very interesting. Uh- all of your ideas, uh, Dan, very, very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. You know, coming up next, I've got uh, Bill Lagner, who also, uh, he and Kevin Duffy manage a, a hedge fund, and they, are, uh, they have a lot of gold assets in there as well, I'm quite sure. Anyway, uh, Bill is telling me, and I'm we are gonna hear what he has to say coming up next. But he was saying that he thinks that we're gonna have a master run in the gold shares in 2014. I'm assuming that would make you happy. Uh, what do you think? You, could he be right?
2: Oh, I, I think so. Uh, but I, I think uh, you know my, my view is that the gold run will happen in conjunction with interest rates. Mm-hmm. There, there's a big, uh, you know most Wall Street analysts. Think that rising nominal rates are bad for gold. And and their analysis is that uh, gold has no cash flow until the opportunity cost of owning gold goes up with higher interest rates and therefore the price goes down. And and it's a wonderful theory. The problem is, if you look back, it doesn't fit the facts. If you look at a chart of nominal interest rates against gold, the two are highly, highly correlated. (laughs) And, and there's a reason for this, which is that uh, if we think of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, which, I, which is how I think of the dollar, all the dollar is is the liability of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, mm-hmm. right? And a sure. liability cannot be worth more than the assets backing it. So what are the assets of the Federal Reserve? It's now very large-term treasury bonds and real estate bonds. And what happens to the value of those bonds when rates go up and nominal rates go up? And the answer is they tank. And so when nominal rates go up, you tend to get a lot of inflation. Which actually, you know, ironically, the higher, the, the faster rates go up, uh, the more negative they become in real terms. And, and it's not coincidental that when Volcker jacked rates from what was it, 4 or 5% to 21%, that, that exactly corresponded with the uh, huge spike runoff uh, in, in gold in, in 1980. And, and so I expect the same thing to happen where. You know, we're going to see inflation start kicking out. The Fed's going to panic and raise rates, and it's going to make it worse, and they won't understand it. Uh, and so they keep doing the same thing. And, and that's, that's what really power gold higher in the next level. When that happens, the gold mining shares will really fly because they're so depressed at the moment. I, I think when you know, if gold moves even a little bit, they're going to go up a lot. Uh, and when gold really runs, they're going to uh, shoot higher. So I agree with
1: that. Uh, I, I hope it's not just wishful thinking on my part. I do, too. Uh, I want to thank you again, Dan, for being with us today. It's really been a pleasure having you on, and probably would like to have you on sometime before the next CMRE. Uh, I guess there will be one in the spring, uh, probably?
2: Yeah, we usually have one in October and in May, so we're, we're yes. currently planning that one,
1: and uh, I look forward to going on your show anytime. That would be great. Thank you very much, Dan, for being with us today. Thank you. Well, folks, uh, that concludes the first hour of our show. I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. But that's not all for today, because uh, you can go to J Taylor Media dot com and click on the podcast button there for the remainder of today's turning hard times into good times show coming up next will be bill lagner and then chen lin my friend uh, from beijing will be with us to talk about his views uh, on the market as well so uh, be sure to check in with jtaylormedia.com uh, immediately following this uh, this segment don't go away i'll be right back